Everyone has questions. Why am I here? Where will I go when I die? Is there really truth? But not everyone has biblical answers. Welcome to The Pastor Study, a ministry of pastorstudy.org. Join us now as we study the Bible to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Pastor Tom Brock. Welcome to The Pastor Study. Would you grab your Bible, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, because today we do church number 6 of the seven churches of Revelation. Let's go to the globe here. Here we are in the United States of America. Today we're going across the seas to this pink country. It, today it's called Turkey. Back then it was called Asia Minor. Jesus appeared to John about 95 AD, gives him seven different letters to seven different churches. Okay, today we are going to do the church of Philadelphia, the church that Jesus loved. Now you might say, but didn't Jesus love all the churches? Well, he did, but this is the first time that he mentions love in these letters. So again, take out your Bible, Revelation chapter 3, and let's pray. Father, we would pray today that your Holy Spirit would speak to us now as we study these important letters. And Lord, just uh, help each of us in the United States be willing to suffer like they were suffering in Philadelphia. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. Jesus says this to John. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, let me stop. Let me tell you about the ancient city of Philadelphia. This is the youngest of the seven churches in Asia Minor. It was founded about 150 BC. The word Philadelphia means the one who loves his brother. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was named after Philadelphia in Asia Minor, and Philadelphia is known as the, brother, the city of brotherly love. The reason it was called Philadelphia in the ancient world is because uh, the king of Pergamum named it Philadelphia after one of his beloved brothers who was faithful to him. The city of, ancient city of Philadelphia was situated on the edge of a great volcanic plain, which main, means it had very rich soil. There were frequent earthquakes in Philadelphia. Sometimes the citizens had to live in tents because of the earthquakes. The main crop was grapes, so winemaking was big in ancient Philadelphia. And the ancient god of wine, Dionysius, was much worshipped in the city. The main problem in Philadelphia was not the pagans, the Gentiles. The main problem in Philadelphia was the Jews. The ancient Jews were persecuting the ancient Christian church in Philadelphia. We know from history there were Christians in this city all the way to 1300 AD. And today, only the cities of Smyrna and Philadelphia still remain as cities of the seven churches of, of Revelation. And the other thing to say, this letter... There's no condemnation. In the other, other letters, Jesus has to criticize the church in Smyrna or, or uh, Thyatira. Here, there's no criticism. That's the ancient city of Philadelphia. Turn with me to Revelation 3, and now we look at verse 7. To the church of Philadelphia write, this is Jesus talking, the words of the Holy One, the True One. Here's the first lesson. 
Jesus is God. In Revelation 4.8, in Revelation 6.10, the Holy One is a reference to God. In this verse, it's a reference to Jesus. Because in the New Testament, it is taught that Jesus is God. Some friends invited me over for dinner. And they invited their neighbors who they thought were Baptists. Well, it turns out they weren't Baptists. We're all having dinner. And this man starts talking about his church. And something seems funny. And finally, I said, does your church believe in the Trinity? One God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? No. Well, Baptists do. Well, do you believe Jesus is God? No. Well, Baptists do. I said, what church do you go to? We're Christadelphians. And the Christadelphians are like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe Jesus is eternal. Jesus is not God. Jesus is a creature made by God the Father at a point in time. And I basically said, well, what do you do with the verses in the Old Testament that uh, referred to God? And in the New Testament, those verses are requoted and they're applied to Jesus. And then I quoted, quoted the classic passages. What do you do with John 1, where it says the word Jesus was God? What do you do with Colossians chapter 2, where it says all the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus bodily? What do you do with Philippians chapter 2, where it says Jesus was in the very form of God? What do you do with John chapter 20, where Jesus rises from the dead and Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God? Well, he, he said, well, okay, we disagree on this, but we're all Christians. And I said, this one is so big, who Jesus is. If you get that one wrong, I don't know that you're a Christian. I mean, Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your lips Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If you don't believe he's the Lord, will you be saved? I mean, it's kind of like my line when people say about the Mormons. Mormons believe in thousands of gods. And they'll say, oh, Mormons, I know what they do with Jesus is wrong, but they're so moral. They're so family-centered. You know, and and I, my response is, that's like saying, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Getting Jesus wrong is everything. <laughs> Let us look at verse 7 again. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has the key of David? Well, in the Old Testament, King David had a steward over his house by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim had the key. He determined who got into the palace and who didn't get into the palace. And I think the key of David is, is symbolic here of saying Jesus is the one who determines who gets in and who gets excluded. You know, maybe the Jews in Philadelphia were saying, we're the chosen people, not you. We are the ones who get in. Well, look what Jesus says in the next part of the, verse 7. The key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here's the next lesson. Jesus alone has authority to admit or exclude from the kingdom. In other words, Jesus determines who goes in. Now, let me, let me explain this, though. Follow this, please. Some of that authority, of that key of who gets in, he has given, Jesus has given, to the church. Because do you remember what he says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16? You are, a Peter, you are Peter, and I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
And then later after the resurrection, Jesus gives that authority to all the apostles. In, in John 20, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is called the binding and loosing. We do this in church. If you're a Catholic, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Lutheran, often in your service, you'll start out with the confession. And in the Lutheran church, it can go like this. Oh, uh, oh God, my Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I've sinned against you in many ways, not only by our transgressions, but by secret thoughts and desires. And I pray thee because of the innocent, bitter sufferings and death of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be merciful to me. I've confessed my sin. Then the pastor does the loosing. He pronounces what's called the absolution. And in the Lutheran church, it can go like this. I am a called and ordained minister of the Church of Christ, and by his authority I declare unto you the entire forgiveness of all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's loosed the congregation of their sins. But also, Jesus gave the power to the church to bind sins to people. And sometimes, we don't do it enough, but in the liturgy, it, it will, will then go on to say this. On the other hand, by the same authority, I declare to the impenitent and unbelieving that so long as they continue in their impenitence, God has not forgiven their sins and will surely visit their iniquities upon them unless they come to repentance and, uh, before the gray of day of grace is ended. So there you have Jesus giving the keys, the authority to the church. Often we do this in public worship. Sometimes it's good to do it in private. I'll have people, you know, throughout my ministry will say, Pastor Brock, can I come talk to you? And we'll sit down and they'll confess a sin that's been troubling them and they wonder if God will forgive them. And after, I'll hear their confession then I'll put my hand on their head and I'll say, I announce to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ the entire forgiveness of all your sins. I remember a professor at seminary and he said, when I was in the parish, there was a certain woman who was so guilt-ridden. She had done something that she just could not forgive herself for. She didn't think God forgave her. And this went on, and he said, finally, I just took her one day, and I put my hand on her head, and I said, woman, I announce to you the entire forgiveness of all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, she was fine after that. <laughs> so, Jesus gives the authority of the keys to his church. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you, Philadelphians, an open door which no one is able to shut. Now the question is, what is the open door that Jesus is putting before the Philadelphians? Well, two different opinions. One opinion is that Jesus is the open door who gives access to God the Father. And he says, I'm putting myself before you to come in. But others think, and this is quite possibly the interpretation, Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 talks about an open door that he has. It means an, a missionary opportunity that he'd received. So it's one or the other. Look at verse 8. You have but a little power, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those, and he's talking about the Jews persecuting in Philadelphia. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Here's the next lesson. We learned this already in, in Revelation 2, verse 9. Here we learn it again. Here's the lesson. Jews who reject Jesus are not really Jews. Jesus says here, 
The Jews who've rejected Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, they're not really Jews. They're not the chosen people of God. Verse 9, And I will make them, the persecuting Jews, bow down before your feet, and they will learn. Here's the next lesson. The church's enemies will be humiliated on Judgment Day. The Jews in 95 AD who were killing or persecuting the Christians in Philadelphia, on the last day they'll have to bow before the people they killed. The jihadists in the Middle East who are beheading Christians, one day they will come and be before the feet of the people they have killed. Verse 9, they will bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. There's the first mention of love. So here is the next lesson. I mean, maybe you have felt in these last few weeks, if you've watched this show, that Jesus is being pretty stern. He keeps rebuking these seven churches. Where's the love of Christ in that? Well, my response is this. Because Jesus loves his church, he rebukes it. I mean, if you're, if you're a father and your seven-year-old boy is skipping toward the cliff and he's about to go over, you run to that kid and you turn him around. A loving father does that. Because Jesus loves his church, he rebukes it when he has to. In fact, look at the second reference to love in these letters. It's down in um, uh, verse 19 where he says, Those whom I love, I reprove. So, you know, maybe... You watching this show are going through a discipline right now of the Lord. You feel God is chastising you for something? Well, praise God for that. That shows he loves you. If he didn't love you, he'd leave you alone and let you go over the cliff. Let's look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now the question is, what is the hour of trial that Jesus is going to save the Philadelphians from? Well, again, there's two interpretations, different interpretations. Some scholars think it's talking about the Roman persecutions. You know, from 32 AD all the way to 313 AD, the Christian church was persecuted by the Roman Empire, and maybe the hour of trial is that. Second opinion, though, is that this is talking about the end of time. The um, Bible talks about a great tribulation coming right before the second coming of Christ. And so is Jesus going to save them from that? So, or or is it, does it maybe mean both? Because the Roman persecution is kind of a prefiguration of the end of time. So, it leads to a little detour here. Here's the detour. Does Revelation 3.10 teach the pre-tribulation rapture of the church? In other words, does Romans 3.10 teach that Christians will disappear seven years before the end so they get to miss that tribulation period and the Antichrist. What I'm going to do now in this detour, let me give you two very different views, then I'll tell you what I believe. But view number one is that some Christians believe that the church will be raptured, caught up to heaven seven years before Christ returns, and the Christians in heaven get to miss the tribulation, get to miss the Antichrist. John Walvrood was a, a man who believed this, and he says, quote, This verse, Revelation 3.10, 
implies the rapture of the church before the time of trouble referred to as the Great Tribulation. This passage provides some support for the hope that Christ will come for his church before the time of trial. If you've read those Left Behind books, that's their view, view number one. Let me give you a view number two. Other Christians believe we will be saved from the time of trial, not by being taken, uh, taken out of it, by, but by being taken through it. Remember Noah. Noah was not saved from the flood by being taken out of it. He was saved through the flood. And G.E. Ladd, a different scholar, says this. Jesus said when his disciples were hated and put to death, Luke 21, quote, not a hair of your head will perish. Physical death, even as a martyr, has no eternal significance. Indeed, in the time of Antichrist, the martyrdom of the saints will prove their salvation. Although the church will be on earth in these final terrible days and will suffer fierce persecution and martyrdom at the hands of the beast, she will be kept from the hour of trial, which is coming upon the whole pagan world. God's wrath poured out on the kingdom of the Antichrist will not touch his people. In other words, there's two different views that will we'll miss the tribulation or will go through it. My understanding is we'll go through it. I mean, I, I, I hope the people holding view number one are right. I'd rather not suffer. But the reason I believe we'll go to the end and be here for the second coming of Christ, we're promised persecution in this world. If you ask the Christians in Afghanistan who are being beheaded, do you think the church will go through the tribulation? They'll say, what do you mean, will? So... Uh, let's look at verse 11, end of detour. <laughs> Jesus said, I am coming soon. Now the question is, what does soon mean there? Because those words were spoken about 95 AD and Jesus still hasn't come back. So what's going on? Well, part of the answer is from the book of Peter where it says, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. But William Barclay, a different scholar, said this, it is quite true that in the literal sense, Jesus did not come back to those who were so warned. But what is true is that no man knows when eternity will invade his life and when God will bid him rise and come, and that too must warn the careless to prepare to meet his God. <coughs> So did Jesus come back in 95 AD for these people? Well, anytime somebody dies, Jesus has come for you. So here, here's the next lesson. Always be ready. I talked to a man who had a, who had a heart attack. I said to him, what's the main thing the Lord taught you through that? And he said, always be ready. There's an old saying. He who waits till midnight to repent often dies at 11.30. Let's look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Here's the next lesson. The Christian's job is to hold fast. I have a lot of respect for these Christian florists and bakers and photographers who are refusing to do a gay wedding and they're being fined but they're holding fast. I have little respect for liberal Lutheran Episcopal Presbyterian pastors who are doing gay marriages. They are not holding fast. Christian, our job is not to jump on every bandwagon that goes through the culture. Our job is to hold fast to the scriptures. 
Let's see your reward. If you will do that, if you hold fast to Christ in these strange times, you're going to get three rewards. Let's look at number verse 12. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Pillar means you will have an important place in heaven. If you hold fast to Christ down here on earth, one day you'll, your first reward is you will have an important place in heaven. And the second reward is in the next verse, verse 12, next part of the verse, verse 12. And I will write, and he will never go out of it, God's temple. He will never go out of it. Second reward is heaven is an eternal blessing. You know, here's a youngster. Well, Pastor Brock, can you sin in heaven and get kicked out? And I said, no, that's what makes heaven heaven. Your sin nature is gone. You're not even tempted to sin anymore. Once you go to heaven, you're never kicked out. It's an eternal blessing. And then, the, So the first blessing is you're important in heaven if you cling to Christ down here. Number two, it's going to be an eternal blessing. And then the third blessing is verse 12. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my own new name. The third blessing is we are owned by God. When God puts his name on you, that means he owns you. We're not owned by the devil anymore. We're not owned by the world anymore. We've got a new owner. We belong to God. Finally, verse 13. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's the last lesson. Hear God's word, ignore man's word. If you're liberal Lutheran, I'm a Lutheran pastor myself, but there's, and there's good Lutheran pastors and bad ones. But if you're liberal Lutheran, Episcopalian, uh, Methodist pastors telling you abortion is okay, gay sex is okay, you ignore that and you hear God's word. We are to ignore the word of man, even if it's in the church, and we are clinging, clinging to the word of God. I mean, the Presbyterian Church USA, do you know what they stated some time ago? You can, you can open the service in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can refer to God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can also refer to God as mother, child, and womb. Can you imagine, I opened the service today in the name of the mother, child, and womb. Feminism has gone crazy in these liberal denominations. Again, Jesus is saying if you have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says, not what heretics say, what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Welcome to the portion of the pastor study where we now ask Pastor Brock to share with us his knowledge of Scripture and his insights to answer questions we have regarding the Bible, our Lord, and our everyday walk with him. Pastor Brock, what religious groups are denying that Jesus is God? Yeah. You know, Jackie, every true Christian church and denomination believes in the Lordship of Christ, that he's fully God and fully man. They believe in the Trinity. There's one God and three equal eternal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The cults deny it. Now, friends, and when I say cult, Judaism is not a cult. Hinduism is not a cult because they don't claim to be Christians. But I, by cult, I mean those churches that say they're Christian and they're not. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity. The Mormons don't believe in one God. They believe in thousands of gods. And what you say to the Mormons at your door, if they ring the doorbell, they don't believe God is eternal. God became God on another planet. He started out as a man. And what do you do, I say to the Mormons, with the book of Psalms, which says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
So the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, the Christadelphians, Unitarians, they deny the Lordship of Christ. Well, if Jesus is God, then who was he praying to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yeah, and people say that's, you know, if Jesus is God, why does he pray to God in the Garden? And the best answer I can give you is you have one God and three distinct persons. So you have God the Son praying to God the Father. That's the best I can tell you. Okay, if a person is troubled about a sin that they've committed, how do they know that God can forgive them? Mm -hmm. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jackie, if I sin, I confess it and I claim First John 1 John 1.9, God, you've forgiven me. But sometimes, even though it's all true, I need to hear it from another Christian that it is indeed true. Your sins are forgiven, which is why we have confession absolution. Okay, well then, I guess the next question I would have would be, can you confess your sins directly to God, or do you need to confess to a person, a priest, or somebody to be forgiven? Well, first, Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So indeed, you can ask directly for forgiveness from God. Um, I don't think you have to go to a priest or a pastor or a friend to get forgiveness. However, sometimes you kind of need to, to, to hear the, the word of forgiveness pronounced. Because Jackie, we all have doubts. And just to overcome my doubts, to hear it through another human is a good thing. Can you explain what happens in confession and absolution? Yeah. You know, Jackie, uh, and you don't have to be, a, a James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So you don't have to go to me or a priest. You can talk to a dear Christian woman who's, who's your prayer partner about your sins, and she can pronounce the forgiveness of sins. But in, in the more formal way, people might go to a pastor and they'd confess their sins, and then the pastor uses that keys that we talked about, uh, what Matthew 16, where... The, the church has the authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins on those who are penitent and, and trust in Christ. So you're saying a regular Christian can give an absolution? Yes, I believe so. James 5, yep. Okay. Um, how important is it what a person believes about the rapture? Right. You know, Jackie, I'm going to get mail, I bet. Because whenever I tell people, I believe in the rapture, that we'll be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. It says that in Thessalonians. But I think we're caught up when he comes down, not seven years before he comes down. And it's not that. It's not the doctrine of the Trinity. And some people think it's a big deal. We want to thank you for being with us this week. We pray that God will be with you this week, granting you his richest blessings until we're together again next time. Thank you for watching the Pastor Study. You can watch more of our programs at pastorstudy.org. We are on the air preaching the gospel of Christ because of our generous support of you, our viewers. Would you consider supporting our ministry? You may do so at pastorstudy.org. Or write the Pastor Study, P.O. Box 41294, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55441. May the blessing of our one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you today and always. <laughs>